Welcome to Imagine That. Your host is Dr. Miriam Franco. Today, we'll discover the power of imagination to relax and discuss many of the ways it can help solve problems, improve your health, and more. Imagination is a healthy, powerful tool that, when applied to a concern, becomes a powerful ally that we can all benefit from. Now, here is Dr. Miriam Franco. Welcome to Imagine That. I'm Dr. Miriam Franco, your host. As a psychologist and a guided imagery specialist, I have witnessed the power of our imagination to help us reduce pain, let go of stress, prepare for challenging life events, and improve health and coping. As Albert Einstein said, first we imagine it, then we create it. Each week on Imagine That, I interview healthcare professionals, wellness experts, teachers, artists, and community leaders who apply innovative ways to use the power of imagination to relax, cope, perform, and learn. Today we explore innovative therapy interventions to help people heal from trauma. Our guest, Janine Tapire, a licensed clinical social worker, is a New York psychotherapist and integrative psychoanalyst, speaker, and author. She specializes in using creative visualization techniques to engage the body and shift long-standing negative belief systems to help her clients better access where they are stuck, thereby shifting their negative conditioning. Janine incorporates these techniques in her therapy work with people who have been exposed to various kinds of traumatic events. She'll speak to us today about a particular technique, EMDR, an approach that allows memories frozen in time to be released from the nervous system so that they no longer prevent one from having a freer, richer life. We'll also explore some new research on other visualization techniques, such as virtual reality, for its potential to help people heal and cope with chronic illness. Janine Tapire is a licensed clinical social worker with training in psychoanalysis, addictions, and family therapy. She has presented papers internationally and has published on numerous topics, including unconscious communication, eroticism, and telepathy. Janine teaches at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies and at the Stephen Mitchell Relational Study Center in New York. She is an associate editor with Psychoanalytic Dialogues, the International Journal of Relational Perspectives, and she has a private practice in New York City. Welcome, Janine, to Imagine That, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, so um, it's interesting listening to you describe what I do because trying to sort of formulate um, an integrative perspective means that I, I suppose I've drawn from a few different disciplines in order to kind of forge a path and do what I do with my clients. Um, I will say, though, that whoever walks in the door, um, I sort of find a new version, I think, of who I am when I'm working with them. So these are all tools in my toolbox, but it, it doesn't really feel formulaic because we're all different. Yes, that's a wonderful point to start with. As a psychotherapist myself and similarly trained as you are, Janine, every 
twosome, every diet, as we like to say, is unique and different. And there's two people working together in the process. So even with a seasoned, experienced therapy skills and training, there's always a new experience and new ways for the therapist, if open, to work creatively. That's right. Yes. So, Janine, as I mentioned, you and I are psychotherapists. We're also relationally trained analysts. That's a professional orientation that's quite dedicated to understanding the impact of trauma on a developing child and also within adult experience. We're so familiar with the concept and the broad clinical presentations of trauma, yet our listeners, I suspect, often hear the word trauma but may not be exposed to what is meant by trauma, traumatic reactions, and how it affects our minds and our bodies, and even our ability to utilize existing treatment effectively. Right. So how would you define trauma for the layperson? Okay, well, really, Miriam, trauma is you know, any experience that comes along that overwhelms the system. So it's where our brain or our coping mechanisms get flooded and overwhelmed and have to resort really to other methods of managing the experience in order to survive. So those can be huge, sudden experiences like an earthquake, something catastrophic, Um, but they can also be what's called developmental trauma, which is more things that happen repeatedly early on in one's life through relationship patterns, relational patterns in the family, where it can even be a sort of family style of speaking to one another that feels kind of corrosive and brings you down over and over again, that sort of forms patterns in your brain, literal neuropathways that then anticipate that kind of response in your adult life. So when we're thinking of trauma, it's not only these big, huge events um, or, you know, even something sudden like being bitten by a dog, you know, out of nowhere Mm -hmm. on a sidewalk, but it, it can also be, you know, those events we call trauma with a big capital T you know, the big T traumas, um, the ones that, you know, are catastrophic in the world. Um, I, I mentioned earthquakes, but they can be major abandonments. They can be sudden deaths. Um, they can well, be... Many people, I think, yes, are familiar with um, wartime trauma. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so combat trauma is actually one of the areas that's been studied the most with Vietnam vets. Um, but any sudden loss or... And also, let's include definitely in big T trauma, childhood, physical, or sexual abuse. Yes. It's, it's highly traumatic to the whole child's relationship with the world and with the trusted caregivers. Um, so those are all big T traumas. So, you know, what are the typical kinds of symptoms that we see when someone has a big T trauma? Um, post-traumatic stress disorder is now being understood far, far better than it used to be. Um, You know, it used to be that people would have symptoms like flashbacks or, you know, sudden panic attack or anxiety or, you know, phobias. Um, I had a patient once who uh, could not touch velvet, the fabric velvet, and we connected it to an early experience of rape when she was 16, um, that there had been pillars on the bed where this happened that were covered with velvet. 
So, you know, this is a sort of a programming in the brain, if you like, that every time she felt or saw that fabric, her system would go into an autonomic response. I, I think that's a very important piece to hold on to. How exposure to the traumatic event continues to live on in the body and in the neurochemistry of the brain. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I know that often people who have full-blown PTSD, it may be obvious to other people because they may have terrible nightmares They may have flashback experiences. They may have profound depression or avoidant behaviors. They may have, they may present in many symptomatic ways. Yet, there are people who don't have full-blown PTSD. They may be very resilient and functioning in some areas of their life quite well. But they may have trauma that's still reverberating in their behavior the way they don't regulate their emotional life or in some area of functioning. Could you speak to that? Because I think many people anticipate a traumatic response to things that we all understand are extremely traumatic to most of us. Right. But the kinds of experiences that many of us struggle with are lack of self-confidence, a feeling of not being able to reach your potential, um, so getting stuck in patterns uh, in relationships, you know, where you find yourself in the same pattern over and over again that the relationships don't seem to work out or they feel destructive in some way. Mm-hmm. It, might, it might manifest in self-sabotage, you know, where you, you're really great at starting gate. You start something, you, you feel confident about it, you have a good idea and it starts moving. And all of a sudden, you find yourself doing something that screws it up. It's like, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. These are sort of the corrosive places inside that can be what we call the sequelae, the, the follow-up the follow after sort of these inbuilt kind of traumatic, with a smaller T, if you like, the, the influence of these negative experiences. So it can manifest in addictions, in relationship patterns, even just in a general sense of malaise. So, you know, if, you, if you're not sure why you might just not feel right, it can be enormously helpful to sort through your history with someone. And, and you might find yourself saying, but I had a perfectly good childhood. My parents were very loving. They gave me everything I needed. Um, you know, they sent me to school. You know, I had cousins, whatever, whatever. And yet, why do I still feel bad inside about myself? If you unpack that carefully with someone who can take a very careful, detailed history of the relationship patterns, I ask things like, what was it like at the dinner table in your family? Who would talk? Who wouldn't talk? What things were allowed to be talked about? What was the atmosphere like? How did you feel sitting there? about yourself? Did you feel big? Did you feel small? Was there welcoming of ideas and people's voices? Or did you feel like one person dominated? Did it always end in a row? You know, what was the dinner table like? So again, Janine, I think what's so important in this recent piece you just spoke to and a takeaway message is that people can have trauma that has not been unpacked or integrated that function in many ways quite well. They don't all have to have 
the falling apart response to a recent trauma. They can have areas where they're resilient and they're functioning, but as you suggest and mention, there are these repetitive patterns where they get stuck, where things are just too disconnected, their goals somehow don't meet their behaviors, they're stuck at a deeper level, and they're, and they're really suffering a lot. Right. And this is often out of one's conscious awareness. You know, this is often the kind of thing that we don't fully realize that, that this is happening. Or if we do, we, we feel very confused and sort of overwhelmed by it. Like, how did I find myself here again? Um, by the way, um, you know, sort of c- cumulative trauma that these sort of experiences that repeat over and over again growing up that kind of develop these locked-in negative belief systems, they often ma- manifest also in physical symptoms. Yes, well, you know, the body always <laughs> yeah. takes the score, right? That's right, that's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bessel van der Kolt has written a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score. And, you know, we have to watch out for our stress and for the, the way these patterns and belief systems live in our minds because we embody them. So I think you and I could really start in the next segment to start to talk about how do you really prepare people right. for the process of starting to work on the trauma, even identifying it's there, what it looks like, and what this is going to be like? So let's hold that question, Janine, as we approach the first commercial break today. And stay tuned, everyone, because if you have a loved one or someone you care about that has traumatic experience or is perpetually stuck, This will be really helpful. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. De-stress with guided imagery. I'm Dr. Franco, a relaxation and guided imagery specialist. I've designed an app, Imagery Work, to relieve stress and improve mood, coping, and performance. My sensory meditations are easy to use and promote fast, effective relief from stress in the body and anxious thinking. Imagery work includes tracks for special challenges, relieve caregiver stress, defeat dental fear, stress-free bride, coping with anxiety with multiple sclerosis, mastering test anxiety, and many wellness tracks as well. To download imagery work, go to Apple Store or Google Play. To learn more about guided imagery, visit imageryworkcom To access imagery work, go to App Store or Google Play. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Imagine That. If you have a question or comment about our show or would like to share a story about how your imagination has helped you, send an email to Dr. M. E. Franco at Yahoo.com. That's Dr. M. E. Franco at Yahoo.com. Now, back to Imagine That. Welcome back to Imagine That. My guest today is Janine DePire, a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York who is skilled in using creative visualization techniques to help her clients heal from trauma. If you'd like to learn more about Janine's work, you can contact her on her LinkedIn page or directly via her email. That's J-D-E-P-E-Y-E-R at gmail.com. If you'd like to read more about Janine's research on unconscious communication, you can download several free articles that are on her professional LinkedIn page. Janine, in our first segment, we identified what traumatic experience is, how it may present, and how it can inhibit people's functioning and quality of life. Okay. Since trauma is always connected with painful emotional experience that may not even be processed, but is expressed somewhere in the body, as we discussed in the first segment, in behaviors, perhaps in destructive behaviors, uh, since it's in the neurochemistry and needs to be worked on and reintegrated, The therapy process, therefore, can be challenging, and it must be essential that the individual starting that process is helped to understand the process and in a way that's gentle to what they can process. So, you know, so often people come into therapy and they'll say, even in one or two sessions, I feel lighter Uh, Just being able to start to talk about these things make me feel better. But since with trauma, you have fight and flight responses or shutting down responses, Mm -hmm. being able to access even sometimes their developmental history can be very taxing. So can you speak to how you initiate treatment with someone exploring such difficult emotional material? Okay, sure. Yes, it's a very good question. You know, anyone who walks in a therapist's door, I think, is quite courageous because, first of all, you don't know if you're going to like the therapist. You don't know if they're going to understand you or if you'll feel any affinitive, you know, any affinity with them. So it's, it's quite a thing to walk in. So when I meet somebody for the first time, I, 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 I try to appreciate the risk they're taking and bring them into my office. Um, I try to be friendly and warm. Um, you know, I am a psychoanalyst, but I'm not the old school, traditional, classical psychoanalyst who might not say anything and wait 
for the patient to speak. You know, I try to facilitate the person um, at, at least arriving and make them feel welcome. And then it's a question of sitting back and beginning a conversation. So while we're having the beginnings of the conversation, our mirror neurons in our brains and our bodies are having another conversation. <laughs> they will be talking sort of a bit like when you see dogs greeting each other on the street, sniffing each other out. There's mm -hmm. a subconscious part of us as humans that's really checking each other out as we're talking about the weather. So the first few moments of a first therapy session, I think I try to just create a space for all of the above, just to let it all kind of find its breath in the room. And then I gradually try to ask sort of, why are you here? You know, what is bringing you here now? Uh, this is often called the presenting problem. So people come in because they've usually had something that's tipped them over. And that's the thing. They, they've, okay, now I'm going to call that therapist. So I'm very interested in whatever the specific is that's brought them in. While I'm listening to that, however, um, the trade secret is I'm listening also for how they're telling it to me. Whether it feels like it's a repetition like here they are in a situation, let's say they just got fired. Does it have the sort of tenor as they're speaking about it, that here I go again, you know, one more time, I'm the one who's been fired or no one understands me or something terrible just happened to me and now I'm, I'm the one who's suffering. Do they seem indignant? Do they seem hurt? Um, I listen for how the experience sounds. So I'm, I'm trying to tend to the actual experience in the here and now while also listening for any signs of patterns. Yes, yes. I try and to I, start where they are. Yeah, I think that reminds me, it's, it's good to just take note that we are um, practicing as psychodynamic therapists with, with an analytic framework. And psychodynamic therapy, for listeners who may not fully understand the term, always engages what's going on in the present, in the therapy session, in the here and now, and also any patterns from the past that may also be activated in the present. Right. As well as what's happening in the relationship that um, is relevant to the treatment process. That's right. So, you know, I think that's part of building trust, you know, at the very beginning. Somebody has to feel that you're listening, that you're meeting them where they're at. So then I might get a sort of more of a, a background, a little bit of who they are, what the context is of their life, um, how they got to this place, um, you know, what, what, went, what was sort of the backstory. And I will also be trying to listen for what is it that they want. Are they seeking help with sort of a practical question that they want to answer? Um, are they... Are they feeling really, really depressed and it feels global and they feel overwhelmed and they're seeking some kind of, of support, some kind of a, um, a way out of their pain? So I, I try to listen for what it is that they're seeking. If I hear signs of trauma, and again, it can be the big T trauma or the little T trauma, um, I might discuss with them different ways that I can approach working with them. But first I listen. The listening part is very, very important. You know, I listen for things like um, their coping mechanisms, both psychologically and behaviorally. You know, when they are really sad or depressed, what do they do? 
do they, how do they comfort themselves? I listen for whether they use substances, um, whether they go home and curl up into bed, um, pull the covers up. I listen for whether they reach out to friends or family. Um, I listen for when they do feel overwhelmed, does it end really badly or do they come through it? I'm sort of listening for how integrated are they? Um, how susceptible are they to anxiety or depression? Um, do they have panic attacks? And what are the kind of things that, that trigger that? So I think fundamentally, I kind of try to assess what their support system is. How do they self-soothe? And what is the nature and extent of any trauma that they might have experienced? So you know, this is sort of done not necessarily all one question after another. A lot of it kind of unfolds and tumbles out in time. But I am, I'm listening particularly, especially if there's any trauma, and if I'm thinking I might implement EMDR or one of the other techniques and modalities that I practice, I listen for things like this. Do they have any supports in their life? Who would those people be? Are they alive? Are they dead? Um, do they hold them inside? Do these supports feel comforting? Um, who let, me, let me just interrupt for a moment. That's very important because... The therapist is going to be working with this client, but as you're going to be gradually processing very difficult material, they're going to need supports in their life above and beyond the therapy. Yes. And they're also going to need to, of course, you're going to need to know how they self-soothe because if there are positive ways of self-soothing, you may want to increase that resource or strengthen it um, because there is difficult feeling life to be attended to along the way. That's right. And you brought in the word resource, which I think is a key word, because we all need them. We all need resources in order to survive difficult moments um, to get through things. So self-soothing behaviors, you know, like, you know, taking a warm shower or, you know, going to sleep when it all feels too much or making, you know, one of mine is making a warm cup of tea from my <laughs> English origins or, mm -hmm. you know, watching your favorite TV show. You know, these are all ways of, of soothing oneself. You know, what I also teach along the way are other methods of resourcing and self-soothing. Um, you know, I teach breathing exercises, breathing techniques that mm -hmm. are very effective for anxiety. And another another technique that's so helpful that many people use and is, is very much in the guided imagery world is a creating of a, a place that's a peaceful place. Yes, an ideal place of relaxation. And I, I bring them into that with all five senses. Um, mm -hmm. you, you may have talked about this in other episodes. So mm -hmm. it's certainly something that I, I integrate very much into the practice, along with encouraging things like physical exercise. And by the way, um, not everybody who comes into a session and therapy um, is, is really game for this. You know, very often what happens is someone is listening and I'll sense them pulling back a little yes, bit. Yes, yes. Or they may, they, you know, they may come back the following week and say, ah, I don't know about this. I didn't really feel so better afterwards. Uh, I don't know if this is going to work for me. And these are very common responses at the beginning with therapy. 
um, you know, there is a name for it, resistance in the old school, but I see it more as a really understandable self-protection. You know, yes. who's going to walk in and trust me? You know, well, and I, also it takes time to trust at many levels of experience, right? And as a therapist, I feel I have to earn your trust. You know, I, I support people being skeptical because I feel I have to earn their trust. They have to be able to see how I respond, whether I'm able to adjust to them, whether I'm able to call myself on something if I say something or do something that doesn't quite fit. You know, so I try to build that trust in the room. Um, so really, in a way, joining that resistant part, if it's a part of them, I might name it that. I might say, you know what? I think there's a part of you, like I saw a guy yesterday who came in and he'd had a, an EMDR session with me last week that he, he left the session feeling relaxed and much more hopeful. He came back this week saying, eh, I don't know. I don't know if that worked. I, I, don't, I don't know about this process. And he was really negative about it. So I've been doing this long enough to not be surprised. <laughs> Instead, I asked him what that part of him might be about that he seemed so happy and relaxed and that there may be another part of him that needed to, in the meantime, say, uh-uh-uh, I don't think that we can trust this. We've got to be careful because we've been hurt so many times before. Yes, so, that's so important. I mean, some of us refer to it as parts work, but there are many different parts of us that are present at different moments and that all need attending to. That's right. So, Janine, I, let's start. We're, we're going to approach a commercial break soon, but let's start with at least identifying what EMDR is because we've used the phrase, the term. Uh, many folks may not know exactly what it is and why it's so effective. So let's just first define it, and in the next segment, we can really explore how you use these techniques in your work with trauma. So um, to try to describe what EMDR is, it is a method for working with trauma that involves what's called accelerated information processing. Um, so what it does is it's a way of being able to engage the internal healer of each, each client. Um, it, it sets up a way, a, a protocol of dealing with a particular memory or an, an issue, um, an uncomfortable memory or a traumatic memory, um, which involves sorting through the many components that are attached to that memory. There okay. Really let's, hold, okay. let's hold that thought because there's a lot in what you said and we're going to take another commercial break. To a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. De stress with guided imagery. I'm Dr. Franco, a relaxation and guided imagery specialist. I've designed an app, Imagery Work, to relieve stress and improve mood, coping, and performance. My sensory meditations are easy to use and promote fast, effective relief from stress in the body and anxious thinking. Imagery work includes tracks for special challenges, relieve caregiver stress, defeat dental fear, stress-free bride, coping with anxiety with multiple sclerosis, mastering test anxiety, and many wellness tracks as well. 
To download imagery work, go to Apple Store or Google Play. To learn more about guided imagery, visit imageryWork.com. To access imagery work, go to App Store or Google Play. How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emil Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. are tuned in to Imagine That. If you have a question or comment about our show or would like to share a story about how your imagination has helped you, send an email to Dr. M.E. Franco at Yahoo.com. That's Dr. M.E. Franco at Yahoo.com. Now, back to Imagine That. Welcome back to Imagine That. My guest today is Janine Tapire, a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York City. Janine is skilled in using creative visualization techniques and EMDR to help her clients heal from trauma. In our last segment, Janine, we started to address some creative techniques that can also be employed in the treatment of trauma, in the, in the psychotherapeutic treatment of trauma, such as EMDR. And I asked you to start to define that term. Could you define it again? Because it, it's something that, you know, you might understand it on paper, but then mm-hmm. actually seeing how it works live is a whole nother thing. Absolutely. Okay, so EMDR um, is, a, is a process that helps the right and left side of the brains talk to each other. <laughs> um, the best description I ever heard of it, actually, was in working with children. Um, if, you, if you make a sound to the right and then to the left, or you tap one knee and then the other knee, and you're going back and forth, right, left, right, left, or you make your eyes move from the right to the left to the right to the left, an alternate bilateral movement, what happens is it sort of confuses the right and left sides of the brain and then that allows for the healer within to come through. And I always thought that was a very beautiful way to describe this. Um, EMDR is practiced with children, my practice is with adults, but it's a beautiful description. So what happens is that trauma gets sort of trapped, it gets frozen in the brain and talk therapy you know, comes, uh, talk therapy engages many parts of the brain, but the frontal lobes of the brain are highly engaged with talk therapy, with language, the left sides of the brain engaged with processing of language, organizing of thoughts. And, you know, although the brain has functions that go sort of really, it's not as defined as right and left, but in general, we can talk about it this way. The right side of the brain is imagistic. It's more where the emotions live. Um, it's, it's visual. It's so, uh, symbolic uh, reasoning. It's closer to the processing of emotions. Exactly. So 
very often when we have a traumatic experience, it gets sort of stuck in, in a way that it's not being processed and assimilated. So EMDR, which was discovered quite by chance in 1987 by a woman named Francine Shapiro, who was sitting in a park in California watching people walk past, and she realized, wow, because she'd been going to the park because she was upset about something, realized, wow, I seem to be feeling better after looking at these people walking by, right to left, right to left. She began to wonder if there was something with what she was doing with her eyes. So then she started doing it deliberately, and she started engaging a colleague to do it with her. So she ended up holding her hand up in front of a colleague's face, you know, maybe about two feet from the face, moving her hand from the right to the left to the right to the left, asking her friend to follow her fingers, right, left, right, left. So she asked her friend to think of a problem or something that was upsetting her, and then she'd move her hand back and forth, back and forth, with her colleague watching her fingers moving in front of her face, back and forth. Lo and behold, the colleague started to feel better too. So anyway, fast forward from then, there has been so much research done on this, and Shapiro developed a whole method of working with this, engaging the right and left sides of the brain, a bit like in REM sleep. When we go into REM sleep, there's a part of the sleep pattern when our eyes, in fact, under our eyelids, go back and forth, right, left, right, left. So neurology has sort of come into this therapeutic model and really looked at with spec scans, studied the effect on the brain of this kind of right, left, right, left movement and found that, in fact, it tends to open up and unlock the trauma in a way that it can be resolved and the person comes to a new cognition a new understanding, a new self-acceptance about what has happened. It reduces the, the, the disturbance of the feelings around the trauma. So it reduces and, and sort of uh, reduces the impact of it while reformulating what they believe about themselves through the outcome of the trauma. So EMDR has a whole big protocol to it, but basically it's engaging your visual perceptual um, imagery, you picture yourself in the scene where something happened. Um, so you visualize it and you really, on a sense level, try to put yourself there as much as you can. You don't have to tell the whole story of what happened, but you need to be able to light up the parts of the brain as if you're replaying the trauma. And then you move into what are the feeling states that are coming up. Well, hold, hold on, Janine. So let's go back to that first part because there's a lot in there. Okay. So if some people shut down, Mm-hmm. when very upset, um, and there are many kinds of shutting down responses. And some people get hyper-reactive. Um, you know, they're um, just filled with anxiety or panicky feeling states or physical states. So if I understand you correctly, the EMDR technique helps to guide the person into an experience where they're not overly stimulated or shutting down. It's a little more of a neutral space they can enter and start to use other skills, energy, or focus they have to start to respond to something or talk about the traumatic experience or material. Well, right. It's really shifting the affective states in the body from what I'm understanding. It's, it's, in a way, it's, it's, I see it as, as sort of like going through them. 
Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's when we try to, to not feel something, when we're afraid to, to go back and think about something because it hurts or it's, it's so frightening, we're, we're blocking it. And by blocking it, we're giving it more power. So, you know, I think what you're talking about is a window of tolerance. There are some people who have a hyper-aroused state where they feel like if they feel it or think about it, they're going to wig out, they're going to have a panic attack and become overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And there are others who, who go into a numb or sort of shut down um, passive response um, that often sinks into shame or being unable to think. You know, what I do is I tune in to see where they are, and that's where I begin. But by choosing what's called a target, a picture of the event that they want to work on, I help them try to see, do they have any affect, any feelings connected to that experience? And if they do, I try to help them put a name to that feeling, locate it in their body if they can. And I ask them on a zero to 10 scale, how disturbing it feels. So the zero to 10 scale, it's called a SUD scale. It's to help me kind of be able to measure our progress because very often it will start out like a seven or eight out of 10. It will be a very huge, horrible feeling. And after a few of these processing uh, sequences, back and forth, back and forth, right and left, right and left, it reduces. That's the desensitization part of the EMDR. So it in fact means trusting going into the feelings And what happens is the feelings naturally sort of peak and then subside. And it's when they subside that the shift starts to take place. Now, before going into the traumatic memory, I will have already prepared the patient with a lot of resourcing. They will already have a well-established peaceful place they can go to. They will have behavioral actions that they can take after the sessions that will help them if they feel upset. Um, They will have images, internal images that I've helped them build of resources, such as somebody who's very nurturing, an image of a nurturing figure that they could call up in the middle of the processing if they're feeling that they're looping around during the right and left bilateral stimulation, if they're looping and it doesn't seem to be peaking into that peak where it subsides, I might ask them, do you want to call in some help right now? And this is where the imagination comes in. Absolutely. We are in a, a very um, slowed down brave brainwave pattern by this point. They have been doing the right and left, um, either following my hand with their eyes or doing it auditorially with a sound that beeps right, left, right, left in their ears with headphones. Um, I also have something that vibrates from right to left. They hold a disc in each hand that pulsates right, left, right, left. Um, And I also sometimes do tapping where I tap their knee right, left, right, left. These are all different methods of doing the bilateral stimulation. But basically, the important thing is, once they're processing like that, I can invite them to bring in some help. And we've already resourced them. We've already established a nurturing figure, a protective figure, and a wise figure. They might have an animal from childhood that they feel very comforted by. It does not have to be someone real. It doesn't have to be human, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's what lights up in the brain. So while the trauma is being lit up in the brain, we rewire it by bringing in these 
um, these linked resources. So what happens is after the processing is over, I ask them, when you bring up the event now, what do you get? And what usually happens is they'll say, well, I see, you know, Aunt Josie um, sitting right beside me while the, the man was, you know, hurting my dog. Or they'll be weaving in, it's called an interweave, some of these resources into the memory system so that we're not erasing the memory of what happened, but we are shifting it. You know, when you remember something, you remember it. You put it together again. Each time you remember it, you're putting it together again for new. If you build in other neural networks of associations to that memory system, it is going to reduce the activation. And that sort of is how it works. That's wonderful. It's very similar to guided imagery in that first you teach people how to get into these relaxed states and develop these resources like going to a safe place, an ideal place of relaxation. And then you help them meet the distress where they go back to things that are troubling and they weave in and out with reworking it with the help of guides. It can be some loving figure. It can be a wizard or animal image from their childhood. It really doesn't matter. Very, very interesting. So we're going to approach yet another commercial break. So when we return, I'd like to really continue to talk about how powerful EMDR is as a technique for individuals. And we'll take our break. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. De-stress with guided imagery. I'm Dr. Franco, a relaxation and guided imagery specialist. I've designed an app, Imagery Work, to relieve stress and improve mood, coping, and performance. My sensory meditations are easy to use and promote fast, effective relief from stress in the body and anxious thinking. Imagery work includes tracks for special challenges, relieve caregiver stress, defeat dental fear, stress-free bride, coping with anxiety with multiple sclerosis, mastering test anxiety, and many wellness tracks as well. To download Imagery Work, go to Apple Store or Google Play. To learn more about guided imagery, visit imageryworkcom To access imagery work, go to App Store or Google Play. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, Be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. 
Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned in to Imagine That. If you have a question or comment about our show or would like to share a story about how your imagination has helped you, send an email to drmefranco at yahoo.com. That's drmefranco at yahoo.com. Now, back to Imagine That. Welcome back to Imagine That. Our guest today is Janine DePire, LCSW, a practicing psychodynamic therapist and psychoanalyst in New York City, who uses creative visualization and a technique called EMDR to help people heal from trauma. In our prior segments today, we've learned that trauma can be stored in the body, not just the mind, and that typical talking cures are not often enough to rework the strong feeling base and visceral responses of traumatic events for individuals. Janine has started to share with us just how powerful these techniques can be in her clinical work. Janine, tell us, EMDR, it sounds really um, like a very creative experience for the client, not just the therapist. In your description of how one can lower reactivity and come into meeting the distress of what is so emotionally charged or painful, and then start to interact with it differently. Mm -hmm. This must really just be so profound for people. It is incredibly profound. Um, You know, there are so many examples I could give you, but um, let me think of one. Um, A woman I was working with, um, a wonderful woman, you know, married with a child, but living with a sense of um, a place inside that was so deeply ashamed because of an early experience of how she lost her virginity um, as a, a girl way, way, way too young at a party with kids that was unsupervised, no parents in the house. And she was raped by one boy with two boys guarding the door. Um, And this she had kept inside and hadn't talked about um, for most of her life. So we did the processing on this rape. And lo and behold, where the imagination comes in is, first of all, in dealing with facing the experience and the actual processing of the the moments that she lived through. Um, the, The images and the creative use of her imagination started coming in with imagining if there had been a friend downstairs in the house who had said to her, don't go upstairs, let's go and sit outside by the pool instead. And so she wove in a friend rerouting the experience. Yes, now you could say, yeah, but that's not what really happened. She, She really did go upstairs. And yes, she knows that she went upstairs. But now every time she remembers the beginning part of that trauma, it's built in with this friend And with this wonderful nurturing image of her sitting by the pool, giggling and hugging with her friend, her girl, her friend. So then we we moved forward forward with the trauma itself. And she she was able to tolerate the process where 
the activation started to come down from the actual memory in her body and the emotions of the actual experience itself. Then, as with many rape victims, it's the, the shame afterwards. It's whether or not she could tell her mother. It was who knew. It was that everyone in the school then knew. So in the continuing with our processing, we kept shifting the target to different parts of the trauma, landing on building in a, a figure who had been this wonderful sort of um, nurturing uncle in the family, and she built him in as somebody to help her at school deal with the shame with her friends. The uncle would walk with her and would tell people and explain and help her sort through the whole experience. So, so in effect, she's reimagining the scene and reworking it, like going back to a frame uh, and now factoring in healing imagery. That's right. And she's rewriting the script, not about erasing the past, mm -hmm. but how she's going to experience it. That's right. It's sort of stimulating an adaptive pathway so that when she remembers the trauma, it is no longer sort of isolated, um, unprocessed. First of all, it has been processed. We've, she has felt those feelings. They have done that arc that I described where you allow the person to, in the supportive environment of the therapy session, with the bilateral stimulation going on that accelerates the processing and invites the inner healer, she goes into the experience and it sort of peaks and then subsides. So the exposure, in a way, the exposure to the memory helps it, 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 it subside. And as that happens, she's building in these other resources, the adaptive pathways of nurturing figures, of protection, of ways that she survived. And by the end of it, she had a very different sense of herself as a woman. I can instead, imagine. Instead of it's feeling like a shame-based victim, she felt like an empowered woman who knew now that it wasn't her fault, who knew why she was so isolated with it and no longer blamed herself for not being able to tell anyone. She understood the reasons why she couldn't tell anyone that were real. It wasn't safe to tell anyone. So she kind of went through this whole experience and, and it allowed her to kind of walk off into her life in a very different way. It's really just so moving and it, it's transformative. There are some new techniques out uh, virtual reality that also make use of visualization and hearing or auditory, our sensory auditory responses. And for those not familiar, um, virtual reality usually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Janine, but involves using a headset where you your eyes are covered and you can have... Um, uh, a, a guided scene with sounds and um, yeah. vision, a visual landscape going on. And, and you may be guided through something, but it's comprehensive because it's, it's really covering your senses, you know, with a lot of input. It's very stimulating. People, people think of it often with video games. Right, know, right. It's common way it's seen, but it's any system really that allows a user to feel as if they're experiencing a particular experience but it's through the use of a special perception-changing tools. So right. And sensory, sensory perception, because that's the way the body gets it. It's, right. But it's based on a software. The software yeah. created this world. So, you know, usually it's visual and auditory, 
Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, I think in some movie theaters, they actually secrete some smells. Sometimes uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> go with it and add that sense. But, you know, the thing that I wanted to talk about is how it's being used for training and education. It's being used to deal with anxiety. It's, it's being used in so many consciousness-raising ways. And, and this is what I wanted to describe to you. It's not just a tool for video games or marketing. It's being used for working with PTSD. There's, there are games, sort of games or programs that you can buy. One of them is called Virtual Iraq. But it's for war veterans where the, the visual programming of the, the software helps you sort through the trauma of having been in combat. You know, this is so promising, and I could go on talking with you for hours, but we're soon to run out of time. So for those of you who would like to learn more about Janine's work, you can uh, access her LinkedIn professional page. You can also uh, access her by Psychology Today's online directory. And you can also email her at jdepeyer at gmail.com. Janine, thank you so much for joining us today and being a guest on Imagine That. Thank I think, you. I think these techniques are just so helpful, and I'm looking forward to a time where more therapists like you are integrating this work into their direct practice. Thank and you. Very oh, you're very welcome. And for those who are interested in joining us next time, we will have as our guest Yvette Briscoe a working mother in California who is a multiple sclerosis advocate and has developed a successful podcast series on surviving and thriving with MS. She will be my guest next week. Imagine that. Thank you for taking a deeper look into your imagination with Dr. Miriam Franco. Please join us for another episode of Imagine That next Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tap into your imagination this week.